Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Dr. Dorina Poyani is a senior lecturer in the Urban Planning School of Earth and Environmental Sciences at the University of Queensland in Australia. Dorina is a feminist geographer who has a special interest in urban design. We join her today to discuss her recent article, How Not to Build a Capital, and we will be discussing why the new Indonesian capital needs to heed the mistakes of other trophy cities, such as the Brazilian city Brasilia, Abuja in Nigeria, and Canberra in Australia. Thank you for joining us today, Dorina. Could you give us a little more context about the work you do in urban planning? I'm a physical planner, which is the most traditional branch of urban planning. So that means that I study topics related to the built environment. I do a lot of work around urban transport, um, fair amount of work uh, in urban design and urban aesthetics. And from time to time, I also work on housing projects, um, especially when it comes to housing for more vulnerable groups in society. And a moment ago, Darina, I introduced you as a feminist geographer. In simple terms, what is a feminist perspective and how can you apply this to the built environment? That's a really good question. A lot of people think that the feminist city simply has to do with making the physical space better for women. And it's certainly that. Uh, I agree with that simple definition. So cities need to respond to the needs of women, uh, which often revolve around uh, family and household chores. Although gender roles have changed um, immensely in the past few decades, still we know from statistics that women shoulder most of the burden uh, when it comes to household. Um, Then there are lots of safety issues uh, for women in the city, women get harassed on the streets, on public transport. They don't feel so safe um, moving around at night on foot. And that means that they can end up getting cut off from important activities, um, such as going to school in the evening, taking night courses, or even entertainment, just simply going out to a bar. A lot of women might be too afraid to do that kind of thing. So that's the very simple definition of the feminist city, one that responds to the needs of women. But um, in my book, Trophy Cities, which discusses capital cities, I expand um, that definition of feminism to compare the nation, the way we conceive the nation in the West, to a patriarchy. So often our nations and capital cities are uh, representative of the nation. So our nations are conceived as hierarchies with a man at the top. So the way the father is the head of the family, uh, that's how we see our leader, our president, prime minister. We see that person, often a man, as the head of the state. And then the state kind of goes down from there in this uh, pyramid form. So uh, that kind of conception of the state as a patriarchy is then reflected in city spaces, which highlight the districts where government is located and uh, they give less importance to residential districts where the normal people live. So that's my expanded definition of um, the feminist city or the feminist capital city. 
And do all cities present in that way, Darina? I'm, I'm wondering whether, for example, in Europe, the Finnish Prime Minister, uh, Sanna Marin, um, is a female leader. And I wonder if in Finland, their cities are different to the ones you've just described. Well, I can speak to cities of Finland in particular, but I can compare different times. So patriarchy has been sort of a mainstay of human societies. There have been few societies that can be considered as matriarchal or women were sort of in a more dominant position. But um, in the past, the advantage was that, yes, cities were built under patriarchal regimes, but they were built more organically over time. So that kind of um, more spontaneous way of city building made up for those hierarchies and uh, rigidities of um, the patriarchy. In the 20th century, which has been more the focus of my work, the patriarchy combined with other forces such as market-based capitalism to create these urban forms that have been uh, particularly unfavorable to women. You've worked in urban planning in California, you've lived in Holland, uh, you're a native Albanian and now lecture in Australia. In those specific places, are those cities male-dominated? I would say most cities around the world are male-dominated and one very basic reason is that women are sort of newcomers to the urban planning profession. Most urban planners throughout history since planning became a separate profession with its own school separate from architecture or separate from civil engineering. So um, that's been happening for about 100 years now, a bit over that. And most planners have been have been men. Women have started to join the profession in mass starting in the 70s, 80s, but that's a relatively short time in terms of city building to make a true impact. I should also add that often, even where women work in organizations now, even in organizations that perhaps have equal numbers of women planners and male planners, women still have to work within very patriarchal structures within those organizations. There's these structures that have been set up uh, with the patriarchal city in mind. So then women have to sort of fit in there rather than be able to radically change things. It sounds like there's a bit of a a historical legacy that women in urban planning and design are trying to, to change quite recently. Yes, absolutely. In some of your work, you've mentioned that with this impact and input from women into urban planning, that it would lead to safer, friendlier and healthier cities. Uh, am I right in in quoting that? And why is that? Why does that come from a feminist perspective? Well, when I think of feminism, I don't just think about women or um, white women, for that matter, or middle class women like myself. Um, I think of all women. So women of color, women who are maybe older, women who have children, little kids that they need to take around, women who perhaps have disabilities or who are caring for people with disabilities. So feminism, the way I see it, intersectional feminism, is a cross-cutting issue. And if we look at feminism in that sense and we make cities better for women in that sense, then we have taken care of a lot of other issues that help other groups that face difficulties navigating contemporary cities. 
I imagine this doesn't cover all urban spaces. For example, informal settlements, can they be places of patriarchal power that we, we've talked about already? And, and what about shared spaces? Like in London, we have the South Bank, which is renowned for being uh, a communal area. Yes, South Bank is probably a good example. Uh, as far as informal settlements go, uh, I would say that, yes, they can also be very patriarchal spaces. And from my own research, um, I've noticed that women living in informal settlements often face quite a lot of difficulties. Um, men face a lot of difficulties in informal settlements, for sure. I don't want to, to make it sound as if it's easy for men uh, in those kind of circumstances. But it can be harder for women because, I mean, look at it in very simple terms. If you're um, a woman and you need to make dinner for your family in an informal settlement, uh, you lack clean water. So how would you manage that without clean water? Or you need to uh, wash the dishes afterwards. And it's also the case that informal settlements tend to be more prevalent in the global south. And the global south, most countries, are definitely patriarchies. So, so yes, I would say those kind of relationships and difficulties are present in informal settlements as well. Another issue in informal settlements, something that um, I've noticed from my own research, is that because living conditions are so hard, it often happens that men, out of poverty, out of desperation, end up in addictive situations. So they might be given to drinking or gambling, and it can happen to women as well, but more to men. And that leaves the wives the partners in uh, very vulnerable situations. How might they provide for their children? Or there have been also many, many cases where men might become violent, say, because of um, addictions like alcoholism. So that's another um, situation that reflects the effect of patriarchy in informal settlements. We're here today to talk about a specific country in the global south and its capital city. We're going to discuss Indonesia and the proposal to move their capital city to uh, New Santara, which will be inaugurated in 2024. Um, you've written an article about it in the conversation. Could we now turn our attention to it? And can I ask you, where is it or where will it be? And why is it moving? So this new capital will be located in Borneo, the Indonesian portion of Borneo, in an area that's practically the jungle. I mean, there are there are some developments around there, but um, it is quite a um, vulnerable area. There is animals like orangutans that are endangered um, in the area. And so this new location has raised a lot of um, questions. It's controversial to some extent because of the uh, risk it might put the natural environment um, in Borneo. And in your article, you talk of uh, five common mistakes when moving a capital city. Could we work through those? And could you perhaps give us a, a summary of, in the past, what's gone wrong with, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, Brasilia or Abuja or Canberra? The list goes on. Yes, 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 absolutely. When people engage in this new capital city designs, they are often set on creating a city that looks really well in architecture books. But a city that's good for 
books that's good for taking pictures um, does not necessarily work well for the people that are going to live there. Uh, so oftentimes the common person is forgotten in favor of uh, very representative spaces, big esplanades, malls, and such. And then the residential spaces where people are actually going to live are neglected. Um, another very common phenomenon we've seen in um, new capital cities in the 20th century is this effort to bring modernity to the respective nations. But then um, the word modern sounds good, but the reality has been that modernity is just translated into standardized cookie cutter housing. So in no cases have new capital cities been created via co-design approaches, which um, are considered now as the way to go in urban planning. That's, that's just never been the case. Another big issue with new capital cities, as I see it, is this effort to tame and dominate wild nature. So Nusantara will be located in the jungle. So was Naypyidaw, Do, the capital, the new capital of Myanmar, Burma. We have two cases of new capitals located in savannah spaces, just empty savannah, Abuja, the new capital of Nigeria, and Brasilia, the new capital of Brazil. And we have Nur Sultan, the new capital of Kazakhstan, which is in the middle of the arid steppe, um, not too far from where the Gulag, the Soviet Gulag, used to be in this very, very cold um, area of the country. So when I see these kind of examples, I wonder, well, what's the point of just going into the wilderness and um, interfering with that through construction? Isn't it better to just fix the existing cities that we have? And when it comes to feminism, we talked about feminist planning and geography before, in no case have new capital cities made gender a central issue. There have been a few cases where uh, the designers have sought to create egalitarian kind of cities. So Brasilia was one such case. The builders were socialist architects and designers. So was um, Chandigarh, the new capital of Punjab, a large state in um, India, so not a national capital in that case. So the idea was to create this socialist egalitarian city, but um, neither the designers nor the politicians um, talked about gender equality. No one ever said to create a city that worked just as well for women as it did for men. And I see that as a big problem. And if we were to brainstorm what would work for women in a new city, is there anything in particular? that you would bring in straight away? Or what would be your first thing that you would incorporate into your design? Well, I talked before about all the needs that women have around a home and the family. So all the services would need to be located within easy reach. So a woman doesn't have to travel all over the place long distances while she's carrying little kids and groceries and such. So that's, that's a very basic requirement. So transport needs to work well for women and be and be flexible. The safety issue is quite important, but we shouldn't forget that we shouldn't solve one problem and then create another problem. So one can say that, well, what's the solution? How do we make cities safer for women? And some people will say, well, let's have more police. More police 
might result, might have the um, unintended effects of creating less security for men of color who often end up being the targets of police. So if we make cities better for white women, we may have made them worse for um, men of color. And we don't want that, that sort of contradiction. So that's why I say that issues of feminism are deeper than the surface level of the city. Uh, we need to really create societies that work well for women. And if societies work well for women, it means that they work better for everyone involved. More egalitarian societies would work better for women and for everyone. That way we wouldn't have a safety problem to begin with, that we need to um, hire more, more police to resolve. Why are these mistakes being repeated the world over? So we're talking about it now, and you've listed a number of new capital cities, but why does it continually happen? And will design change in the 21st century, do you think? Well, I think the patriarchy is the common thread that connects new cities, their their creation and the shortcomings. That's what produces the shortcomings. That's my view. And um, it took me a while to reach this conclusion. I kept um, turning this over and over in my head. And I kept thinking, well, does this have to do with the location of the country? Why um, capital cities don't work too well? And then I was seeing similar problems in places located in the global north and global south. And I was thinking, well, does it have to do with race, maybe? But then similar problems one can see in countries that are uh, that have a white majority or a black majority or an Asian majority. And I was, well, is it religion then? And again, similar problems were evident in countries with a Muslim majority, with a Christian majority, with a Buddhist majority. So um, then, you know, after looking at all these different factors, it seemed like patriarchy was the thing that joined all of these cities, all of them have been created under patriarchal regimes. Even the governance system didn't matter so much. So some of the new capital cities I looked at were created under democratic regimes. Others were created under autocratic regimes, completely top-down, yet the problems were similar. And do you think that will change in this century? It will change if we change our society. If we make our societies gender egalitarian, then our cities might become gender egalitarian as well. We're told that in the 21st century, megacities are our future. What can be done to ensure that places like New Santara in Indonesia are well-designed, are nature-inspired spaces? Yeah, so that's a, that's a really good question. I mean, one big reason why Nusantara is being created is that Jakarta as a mega city is not working very well for people. So our effort should be to not create more mega cities. It's clear that uh, as an urban system, they are very difficult to manage. But once we do have a mega city on our hands, I don't think the solution is to go and create another city, especially not in an environmentally fragile context, the solution is to try and make the existing megacities work better. So um, try and implement really good transport systems so people in a place like Jakarta, they're not spending their life commuting to work and certainly not on flooded roads the way Jakarta uh, has become nowadays. And we need to ensure that... Um, 
people are sheltered. I mean, there are large informal settlements uh, in Jakarta at the moment, both on land and water-based settlements. That's not a sustainable urban future for people. And when it comes to a government district, I mean, I understand that government often wants to have a well-functioning district when functionaries, dignitaries can move around easily from building to building. And that's not so so easy to do in a city that's very, very congested the way, the way Jakarta is. But why couldn't a district be set aside in Jakarta itself, where it's well-organized, all the buildings are connected together through good transport, rather than go and create a whole new city somewhere else. And when we think about this new Indonesian capital, I mean, Jakarta at this point is... 30 million people and counting, right? The metropolitan region, the new capital will just be 1 million, perhaps a bit more. But when you do the math, I mean, it will hardly make a dent in Jakarta's population. It's not as if it will fix Jakarta's problem. Finally, we've been talking there about Jakarta's transport problems. And earlier you mentioned transport as a solution to unsafe cities. Um what do you recommend for improving mobility in our 21st century cities? So, can I be a bit radical here? Of course. <laughs> so, please. <laughs> the uh, regular answer to this question would be we need to have more public transport, we need to curtail car use, we need to have more active transport. How about um, the carless city as an idea? A city that has no cars at all, or maybe only has cars on demand for people that truly need it. Like someone, I understand, you know, someone with a disability, physical disability, someone who's very old might need door-to-door transport, of course. So I'm not saying um, those people should be forced to, to walk places, but everyone else could possibly manage without a car. I mean, how about that? As an idea for the future. And that would then free up space, I imagine, for different uses and space could have multiple uses or or be shared absolutely there would be more space for housing all those parking lots that we have now we could build housing on which we sorely need i mean housing is in a crisis situation throughout the world in big cities throughout the world i would say housing affordability is, um, has become a problem we could have more green space so all those car lanes on the roads, they could turn into green medians. How would that be as, a, as an idea? So we'd have these green corridors throughout the city where now we have asphalt. So if there were no cars, how would we plan this radical city of the future? I would say that when it comes to transport, because cars are transport mode, right? When it comes to transport, a carless city or car-free city, I like that term better, car-free city, it would need a good public transit system to act as a backbone, something um, that's massive and can move lots of people around. If we're talking of a city, you know, that's of a certain size, I mean, not a very small city. And then this public transit system would need a good feeder system of smaller vehicles, smaller transport vehicles, smaller buses perhaps, or even on-demand type of transport, the way Uber and 
all our operate nowadays. And then the rest of movement could happen through micromobility modes, such as bicycles, um, which can be the conventional push bikes or uh, electric bikes, which allow for a longer, longer range nowadays, and other small um, mobility devices like scooters. And we're even seeing electric skateboards being used nowadays and monowheels and um, who knows what the future will bring. Certainly, I do not have in mind flying drones and helicopters as passenger modes. <laughs> That's not a desirable future in, um, in my view. But beyond this, what I would really do is I would um, get together with people and co-design this new city if one was to build it from scratch as opposed to a designer coming and presenting blueprints and kind of shoving them down people's throats the way it's happened in the past. Co-designing, to, to use a new planning term, is the future as I see it. So a planner guiding this kind of process should say that, yes, we're looking to have public transit of various forms and shapes, but beyond that, they should let people have their say. Great to finish on a new term, co-designing. Darina, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.